Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan here. We are diving into a big book study and today we are starting back in into action. We are we are working our way through it at this point. Today we'll be on page 79 and the first words we're going to start at are usually however other people are involved. Now what we've done up to now in into action is really important. We've traversed a bunch of work. We've done the fifth step and the sixth step and the seventh step and the eighth step and we are in the ninth step. And Bill Wilson, the writer of the big book, had a lot to say about the ninth step. And remembering that we've, we're going to make amends wherever possible, except to do so when injure them or others. And there's a particular set of circumstances he brings to light that we're going to talk about today. And it mostly has to do with intimate relationships. There's a little story about people at work, and there's a lot of story or a lot of thought on the ideas of infidelity in marriage. So even though he approaches this from the husband's standpoint, uh, we can frame this up as from a spouse's standpoint. And I know from my experience, it wasn't just me that was a mess. Um, My spouse was a mess too. She's got her own story. She can tell it to you one day, I hope. Even so, there was a lot to think about. There was a lot of wrong done to me too. So we've been instructed to never address that as we work to make amends. And that the technique of an amend is to discuss, quite frankly, by owning what we've done or talking about our ill feeling towards this person and then express our regret. So some phrases that you may want to use for that, and I wanted to throw these out there because I'm sorry is empty. And you can tell that I'm sorry is worn out in all alcoholics' lives, all alcoholics' lives. We've said I'm sorry and leaned on it because We never meant we were sorry. We never meant we're going to change our behavior and stop doing whatever it was that was so offensive. And all you can tell. Because the next day, somebody says the same thing to us again. They bring up the issue again. And we say to them, man, I said I was sorry. Because when I say sorry, I really mean shut up. Leave me alone. I'm done with that. And I don't really care how you feel. And I might put it in some sort of a nice way like, man, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. It's just terrible. You're right. I'm just a bad. I might say all those things, but what I'm really telling the person to do is shut up. You're hurting me. I don't want to be held accountable. Leave me alone and things like that. So the technique of expressing our ill feeling, uh, owning the thing that we've done wrong, and then expressing our regret can be handled like this. I sure wish I had not done that. If I had it to do over again, I would definitely handle it differently. I regret what happened. You're important to me, and that was wrong. Those kind of phrases are ownership phrases that'll help a lot in an amend situation, help you walk through this and demonstrate, as our book asks us to do, and demonstrate the ability to bring God through you. We're not going to discuss the other person at all. We're going to bring God through us. We're going to make that other person more important than us so that we might achieve forgiveness from them and become important to them. All right, so that lands us back here on page 79. And let's get started. It says, usually how, oh, well, before we get started, this is sensitive stuff, and this might make people uncomfortable. I know it does me. It deals with a lot of if this, then that, and it's a little wishy-washy on instruction. So I hope to clarify some of that. In any case, he's already told us that these amends take innumerable forms, and it's important for you to weigh this 
not as direct instructions in your own life, in your own situation. These are amends that I believe ought never be done without consulting a sponsor or other trusted members of AA. It's just important for you, if you really want to get the benefit of it, to find the proper words for your set of circumstances. And the best way to do that is to talk to other AA members that have already walked this path. Here we go. Usually, however, other people are involved. Therefore, we are not to be the hasty and foolish martyr who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself from the alcoholic pit. Remember, we're not doing this at someone else's expense. It's at our expense for the benefit of others. A man we know had remarried because of resentment in drinking, because of resentment, a feeling of anger in drinking, he had not paid alimony to his first wife, so he used anger as his justification, right? She was furious. She went to the court and got an order for his arrest. He had commenced our way of life, had secured a position, and was getting his head above water. It would have been impressive heroics if he had walked up to the judge and said, here I am. But remember, we position ourselves as best as possible, so don't do this. We thought he ought to be willing to do that if necessary, but if he were in jail, he could provide nothing for either family. We suggested he write his first wife admitting his faults and asking forgiveness. He did, and also sent a small amount of money. He told her what he would try to do in the future. He said he was perfectly willing to go to jail if she insisted. That's that ownership. Of course, she did not, and the whole situation has only since been adjusted. Before taking drastic action, which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. If we have obtained permission, have consulted with others, that means consulted with others in Alcoholics Anonymous that have successfully navigated the ninth step and perhaps done something similar. So we get ideas. We don't want to go this alone. If we have obtained permission, have consulted with others, asked God to help, means prayer, and the drastic step is indicated, we must not shrink. This is exactly what happened to me. This brings to mind a story about one of our friends. While drinking, he accepted a sum of money from a bitterly hated business rival. Giving him no receipt for it, he subsequently denied having received the money and used the incident as a basis for discrediting the man. He thus used his own wrongdoing as a means of destroying the reputation of another. In fact, his rival was ruined. He felt that he had done a wrong he could not possibly make right. We all have that, right? Remember your fifth step. If he opened that old affair, he was afraid it would destroy the reputation of his partner, disgrace his family, and take away his means of livelihood. What right had he to involve those dependent upon him? How could he possibly make a public statement exonerating his rival? Whew, that's a tough one, right? How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, it says after consulting with his wife, one of the people that would be affected, and partner, his business partner. He came to the conclusion that it was better to take those risks than to stand before his creator guilty of such ruinous slander. He saw that he had to place the outcome in God's hands, or he would soon start drinking again, and all would be lost anyhow. Because remember, the foundation of this was resentment, right? He's mad, and resentment's the number one offender. It's got to be dealt with. This must be dealt with. He attended church for the first time in many years. 
In other words, he's not like a member of this church right there and then. He's just sort of showing up. After the sermon, he quietly got up and made an explanation. His action met widespread approval, and today he's one of the most trusted citizens of his town. This all happened years ago. The ninth step gives us the power to change our past. Now, we don't change the events in a literal sense, but it can change how people see them. And how I like to illustrate this for folks is if any of us just keep on drinking and we end up dying or homeless, the people that know us think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, he's an alcoholic. Look how the guy drinks. Look how the lady drinks. Naturally, she ended up that way. They really don't think anything of it. It seems like we earned it, like we volunteered for it, that we deserved it, that we worked really hard for it, that we spent a bunch of money and time and effort to become despondent and homeless, right? But those same people see us years later helping other alcoholics, and they will bring up that very past that they hated so much and say, if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be doing this today. And the value of the past becomes incredible. It becomes your greatest asset. And this is part of what the Ninth Step Amends creates. We're going to talk about that in the next section. The chances are, oh, in this part, we get into domestic trouble. And this is a thing that gets uncomfortable. If it makes you uncomfortable, live with that. Get with your sponsor. Definitely talk this out. But this is a touchy and sensitive thing. The chances are that we have domestic troubles. Perhaps we are mixed up with women in a fashion we wouldn't care to have advertised. We doubt if, in this respect, alcoholics are fundamentally much worse than other people. But drinking does complicate sex relations in the home. After a few years with an alcoholic, a wife gets worn out, resentful, and uncommunicative. How could she be anything else? The husband begins to feel lonely, sorry for himself. He commences to look around in the nightclubs or their equivalent like churches and work and places like that for something besides liquor. Perhaps he is having a secret and exciting affair with the girl who understands. In fairness, we must say that she may understand. But what are we going to do about a thing like that? A man so involved often feels very remorseful at times especially if he is married to a loyal and courageous girl who has literally gone through hell for him. We have a funny way of repaying people with disloyalty and untrustworthy actions, you know. So this could be a lot of different kinds of relationships. Whatever the situation, we usually have to do something about it. If we are sure our wife does not know, should we tell her? Not always, we think. If she knows in a general way that we have been wild, should we tell her in detail? Undoubtedly, we should admit our fault. Undoubtedly, we should admit our fault. It's one of the few instructions in here. She may insist on knowing all the particulars. She will want to know who the woman is and where she is. We feel we ought to say to her that we have no right to involve another person. That's the critical element. How much can you keep to yourself? How well can you own your part exclusively? because we do not have the right to involve another person. We go on. We are sorry for what we have done, and, God willing, it shall not be repeated. More than that, we cannot do. More than that, we cannot do. We have no right to go further. Though there may be justifiable exceptions, and though we wish to lay down no rule of any sort, we have often found this the best course to take. 
Our design for living is not a one-way street. It is as good for the wife as for the husband. If we can forget, so can she. It is better, however, that one does not needlessly name a person upon whom she can vent jealousy. Perhaps there are some cases where the utmost frankness is demanded. No outsider can appraise such an intimate situation. It may be that both will decide that the way of good sense and loving kindness is to let bygones be bygones. Each might pray about it. Having the other one's happiness, whoa, wait a second, each might pray about it. It doesn't say each might pray about it, hoping they get the outcome that they're praying for. Each might pray about it, hoping that they keep the relationship, even though they've treated it horribly. Both may pray about it to get their way, to get it the way they think it ought to be. Nope, it says both may pray about it. Both may pray about it. Think about that. So two people go to prayer and they're asking for something. Each may pray about it, having the other one's happiness uppermost in the mind. Praying for the other person's happiness, the other person more important than me. The more I make other people important to me, the more important I become to other people, the better able I am to keep the commitments I make to myself and others. Keep it always in sight that we are dealing with the most terrible human emotion, jealousy. Good generalship may decide that the problem be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face combat. I'm not really sure what he means, but I'm sure all of us have a version of that in our mind right now. Face-to-face combat, what would that be? If we have no such complication, there's plenty we should do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is keep sober. What? The only thing, so this is a deal in AA, isn't it? I know it's only popping up here in the ninth step, But there's folks, and we all know them, that come in and do 1, 2, and 3, and 12. 1, 2, 3, and 12. And they skip this whole chapter. They skip it all together. They they skip out on 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. They don't bother with it. And they think just that they quit drinking, and therefore. They think that drinking was the problem. So what's this got to say about it? Hmm. It says, sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober, for there will be no home if he doesn't. That's obvious, right? We got that. But he is yet a long way from making good to the wife or parents whom for years he has so shockingly treated. Shockingly bad. Yeah. And just because you get sober doesn't mean that bad treatment of things goes away. Passing all understanding is the patience mothers and wives have had with alcoholics. We all know that to be true. Had this not been so, many of us would have no homes today. Many of us would perhaps be dead. So it's not enough to just stay sober. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel, and here's your answer, is sobriety enough? Isn't it? I mean, at least I quit drinking. Isn't that good enough? Why wouldn't that be good enough? I don't want, I don't want to do step four. I, I, the rest of it's silly. It's not for me. I got my program. You do your program, right? We don't do the program. Well, I mean, I know I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable, but I, mean, I quit. So what's the big deal? And, and Bill goes on to say, we, meaning the people of AA, the people that contributed to this book, the people that have found a way to stay sober, and have a successful life doing the things taught in this book. We feel a man is unthinking or doing something without care 
when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. He is like the guy who wakes up in the detox to find the wife gone and the money gone and the job gone and the kids gone. Right? The home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? To his wife, he remarked, hey, I've quit drinking. I'm swearing off. I'm not going to drink anymore. Hmm. Right? And ain't anywhere near enough. Just not drinking isn't anywhere near enough. The vitality of life requires a lot more of us. The ability to make amends requires a demonstration of the love and goodwill towards other men that we are literally maximizing our usefulness to God and to our fellow man. Don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? Ain't it grand that I quit drinking? Aren't I awesome? Now will you pay off all my debts? Now will you try to get my job back? Now will you give me a place to stay for a little while while I get myself together and get on with it? So many of us have taken that tack. So here's, he goes on. This is another good part because he's going to talk a little bit about what's next. It says, yes, there is a long period of reconstruction, rebuilding, of making amends and rebuilding trust. That is what we are reconstructing. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. We go first. It is at our expense that we serve others. We have gotten our way at the expense of others for a long time. Now at our expense, we take the lead. We go first. We serve others. We're the first one to get patient in an argument. We're the first one to give up what we want to do to do what they want to do. We're the first one that invests time, energy, love, money, effort into our relationships. They may not want to come along. They may reject us anyway. It doesn't matter. We are on a mission literally from our higher power to demonstrate love, patience, kindly, and tolerance to everybody. We're going to get into that in a minute. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. Saying boo-hoo, I'm so sorry. I wish I hadn't. That's not anywhere near good enough, right? A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. So this is a family amend. Their defects may be glaring. I mean, look who they're dealing with. They're angry and hurt and worried and scared about you. But the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family Asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of what? Patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Not how to set them right. Not how to get them spiritual. Not how to tell them how to live. None of that. Patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Because if we don't live it, it's worthless. If we're not out there doing the things God would have us do in service to him and the benefit of others... We are wasting our time. You have been given this program freely. What an amazing, amazing free gift. And to the degree that you do it, you'll get from it. It is one of those reap what you sow type of things. It delivers far more than you put into it. Look around your AA room. Look around your favorite meeting. That meeting delivered all those other people to help you rather than self-sufficiency, which just left, well, you with you. 
So just that one example, and it goes far beyond that because AA is a vast, vast resource. The spiritual life is not a theory. It's not a guess. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology. It's a reality. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not to urge them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. Why? Because our demonstration will make it attractive, our 11th tradition. They will change in time as a result of how we treat them. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness, or 2, or 5, or 28, or 41, or whatever it is, would make a skeptic out of anyone. There may be some wrongs we can never fully write. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Willingness. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases. But we do not delay. We do this right now as quickly as possible, vigorously. But we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be, here it is, sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble, considerate and humble. So those are the attitudes. That's the angle of approach here for this step. Sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. In other words, I'm going to argue with people. It's, it's said this several times in here, but here it is one last time. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. So just, just with me for a second, let's think about this. When it comes to the family matters, we're to basically lay ourselves out to them and stand firm and hear them. Let them say what they think and feel, right or wrong, true and false, good and bad, like and don't like. It doesn't matter, correct or incorrect. It doesn't matter. We're going to take it on and we're going to handle this with sensibility, tactfulness, consideration of them and humility, knowing that by the grace of God that we're even talking to them. That we live through all this crazy stuff that we do, that our shabby treatment of them is why they're mad. And no matter what they've done to us, we're going to listen to them. This is particularly important in the marriage relationship. At least it was for me. My kids vented to me. My wife vented to me. My ex-wife vented to me. And I'll tell you what, I have great relationships with all of them today as a result of following these steps. Really I mean, extraordinary relationships with them all. So today the discussion might be around what tactful methods, what sensible words, how do you actually, what does being considerate mean when you sat down and did amends? How did humility play a role? Have you worked out a marriage? Were you in a marriage that was challenged? Was your spouse out of the house? Spouse out of the house. It's like Elf on the Shelf, right? Spouse out of the house. Was your spouse out of the house? You couldn't find them? That was my case. What was it? What was it that you did? How did things come back together? Tell a little bit of that story from your experience, strength, and hope that helps us mold these things together so that the people that are on step nine now that are in there learning this incredible tool of step nine right now can learn how to own things and clean up their side of the street when they do things that hurt other people. I hope you have a great discussion.